0: to Hollow Ground Storycast, I'm Alan
1: and I'm Anya and this episode is about one of my favorite movies of all time me and you and everyone we know
0: yeah but we're not even there yet we're still at the good part we're not even sick of each other yet
1: so a little bit about the production history this movie was written and directed by and stars Miranda July uh, it came out in 2005 Miranda July is an artist whose body of work includes film, fiction, monologue, digital media presentations, and live performance art. So she's not your typical Hollywood person. The only actor that I think people would recognize is John Hawks, who's best known mm-hmm. for his appearances on the TV shows Lost and Deadwood, but best known to me as the janitor from Buffy, uh, the episode I Only Have Eyes For You.
0: Uh, oh, yeah. He's-
1: yeah. I know. I know. He's also been in the movies Lincoln and Contagion.
0: I remember when I rewatched that Buffy episode, I'm a big Deadwood fan and I was like, "Oh, it's the guy from Deadwood. It's the Jew from Deadwood. That's what they call him in Deadwood. He's called the Jew."
1: Oh, really? And, um, yeah,
0: yeah. He's like the hardware store owner. He's kind of he's actually one of the main characters. He's like really important character, but everybody, I don't know why, they all call him the Jew. He's the only Jew in town, I guess. I don't know.
1: The movie is rated R for disturbing sexual content involving children and for language. <laughs> um, so I feel weird saying that one of my That's favorite movies is rated R for disturbing sexual content involving children. I, You know... <laughs> On the face value, it's kind of accurate, but I feel like they they were being like super safe, right? Like they wanted to make yeah. sure that you had no room to complain. Yeah, it's, I mean, I feel I've, like man. actually more accurate would be like slightly uncomfortable sexual content involving children.
0: The movie had a two million dollar budget, but it made back four million dollars. So that's really good for an indie art movie, I think. Roger Ebert. Uh, cited it as the fifth best film of the decade. That's pretty good for Ebert. He doesn't usually go in for arty movies. He does like comedies though. So that makes sense to me. It won several indie film festival awards from all different kinds of uh, film festivals. It won the Camera d'Or or the Golden Camera at the Cannes Film Festival. And that means that like it was the best first time film You know, if it's like your first movie ever, then you can win that uh, potentially. And they did. Uh, It won Best Screenplay, Best Cast, Most Promising Performer. So this has like a lot of really smart stuff in it that was recognized by the indie community. I don't think it ever had like a wide national release. I never heard of this in 2005 before or at all until you told me about it.
1: I'm curious who the most promising performer was It Miranda.
0: Yeah, Miranda July, the okay. writer, director, screenwriter. I think they have a point, too. She's very natural on camera. She doesn't come off as not knowing what she's doing at all. Everybody's good in this movie.
1: It's like some of my favorite moments with her are when she's getting like really defensive about her art and her process Mm -hmm. and trying to explain it to the elderly guy who she drives for (laughs) um oh that's such a universal feeling that usually you get when you're talking to your parents and they're just like telling you about how your life is and they're getting everything so wrong and you're like well no actually that's not how that is
0: (laughs) you can tell that she's probably done that a lot yeah Okay. So I was introduced to this movie by you. How did you find out about this movie? Like I said, it didn't have a wide release or anything. How did you find this?
1: So I watched this actually not that long after it came out. I had a a friend in college who was an art major and is now actually a working artist um, who was already a big fan of Miranda July. She was one of 8,000 people who participated in a project Miranda put on called Learning to Love You More, where Miranda and another artist, Harold Fletcher, gave assignments to people to complete things like... Take a picture of your parents kissing, or spend time with a dying person, or record your own guided meditation. Um, And it actually got turned into a book that my friend is actually published in, um, and there's a big website that's still archived online by uh, the San Francisco MoMA. Oh cool. So she was a big fan of Miranda July and so of course she watched the movie and she wanted to share it with all of us and so like me and all of my college friends got together and watched it. And actually so one of my my friends from that group at some point after we watched the movie, he like stole my phone and changed his contact name to the pooping back and forth emoji. <laughs> and he is still in my phone as pooping back and forth like to this day 10 years later
0: <laughs> for anybody who hasn't seen the movie that will make no sense I, I, yeah. I want to know what they think that means
1: <laughs> I want to poop back and forth what? what does that mean like I'll poop into her butthole and then she'll poop it back into my butthole and then we'll just keep doing it back and forth. With the same poop. Oh my god. I'm going to put that. Yeah, and it's still, it's funny sometimes, because we don't talk all that often, and so whenever he calls, and I just look down, and i just like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. So I wouldn't say... I immediately loved it or it immediately became my favorite movie. I definitely liked it the first time I saw it, but didn't think that much about it. But my brain just kind of like kept coming back to it. And I think I watched it maybe like three or four times over the next six or seven years. And then at some point I was like, you know, every time I watch it, I get something new out of it. And yes. I'm, it's one of the few movies that I'm basically just always in the mood to watch. After a while, I kind of just realized, like, okay, yeah, I guess this is my favorite movie.
0: Yeah, that's true. You don't have to be in a certain mood, I think. Like, like we talked about in our Buffy episode that we both love the body so much, but you really, like, have to be in a certain place to watch that episode of television, and I don't think you have to, like, prepare yourself to watch this movie. And, yeah, every time that I've watched no. it, I've gotten more out of it, too.
1: Because it's it's just so f- fun and it addresses serious things but in like a very Mm -hmm. light way and it's its tone is just like so overwhelming that like whatever mood you're in it just co-ops your mood and like makes it something else
0: the movie is like such an ensemble piece that you can kind of like whatever mood you're in you're gonna plug into somebody's story like oh these insecure girls or this dad who's like trying to figure his shit out which is like where I come into it a lot yeah. every time that I've watched it or an artist trying to do her thing like there's always a hook to get you into the movie it's really good like surprisingly good when you're watching it you're like oh there's like the production value seems really low it doesn't seem like they spent a lot of money on this but like everything is good the music is kind of chintzy but it works like so well yeah I don't know yeah it's definitely grown on me
1: and actually one of the things that I've been thinking about since we recorded the Buffy episode I think you called Buffy story perverse mm-hmm. and then as I was rewatching watching this movie, it was just like, Jesus, this movie is even more story perverse. It sort of like takes that <laughs> in and turns it up to 11. Like things that should not be funny are funny or like things that you should not identify with. It like makes you identify with them.
0: Totally. If you listen to Lonnie, Diane, Rich, like we do, she'll teach you like all of the really good rules for storytelling. Like you should, you know, have your seven anchor scenes, your protagonist, your antagonist. And then if you understand all that stuff, then you understand how to break the rules and still like tell your story. And this movie is like aggressively doing that. Like nothing lines up correctly, but all the pieces are there in such a way that it makes sense. And like you said, it stays with you after a while because your mind like plays with it. And it's like... That thing almost makes sense. And I need to like connect the dots somehow. A lot of movies nowadays will like have a weird twist in them or something like that. And that's really easy to do, like to badly be story perverse, to like have a crazy twist at the end or something that doesn't make sense. But to do what she's doing demonstrates a lot of talent and ability and thoughtfulness. Every time that I've rewatched it, I'm more and more impressed by the script and everything that everybody's doing. (laughs) Now we're going to talk... (laughs) About the impossible task of summarizing the plot.
1: Yeah. Uh, So according to IMDb, the description is, a lonely shoe salesman and an eccentric performance artist struggle to connect in this unique take on contemporary life.
0: I mean, all that's true. I mean, I
1: guess, but it makes it sound so boring. (laughs) I mean, my first reaction to reading that, honestly, was like, wait, are they the main characters? And I guess they are.
0: It begins and ends with them.
1: Yeah, it begins and ends with them. And if you do the Lonnie style analysis, they are the two people that I think have the most identifiable goals, right? He is trying to save his family, connect with his children, and she is trying to get her art in the show at the museum.
0: Yeah. And they both want some kind of romantic connection with somebody. It doesn't seem yeah. to be specific to anybody, but they do connect with each other. That moment where at the end where they uh seem to start to fall in love is like cathartic for that storyline as well.
1: Yeah, but it doesn't feel like a rom-com to me in no. the way that that description makes it sound. Yeah. Nothing about the like pacing or the focus or anything about the tone conforms to my expectations for like what a rom com should be.
0: Yeah, and all the stories are very like specific to the people that it's happening to. It's not about them getting closer to each other. It's really them, like you said, like her working her art out and him working out his family situation and once those things are resolved then they have like room for each other to connect. Although yeah. she's like pursuing him for the whole movie, he's never pursuing her, which is also not typical for a rom-com. The movie does not fit comfortably into any category and to and we are not even talking about the many other characters. If you totaled up the amount of time that it's about them, it might be 30 minutes out of a 90-minute movie. Yeah. So they're they're not even the majority of the movie.
1: So I wrote my own description. We'll see if you think this does a better job of summarizing the movie. All right. Um, so my attempt at a plot summary is, people in Los Angeles struggle to connect with those around them in a set of interconnected stories, including a recently divorced dad and his two sons his co-worker at the department store, their two teenage girl neighbors, their other teenage girl neighbor, a performance <laughs> artist who drives an elder cab as her day job, one of her elder cab clients and his dying girlfriend, and the museum art director curating a show on digital media. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's...
0: It's, that's like, very true.
1: overwhelming and chaotic, but that is like, capture something essential about the film.
0: Yeah, the struggle to connect with those around them is dead on. I think that is what connects all those stories. And that is the list of all the characters. (laughs) Like it is not about those, just those two characters. It's about all of those people. Yeah. And it's right right there in the title, right? You and me and everybody we know, like this is about a lot of people. That's a long, cumbersome title, but it's really excellently plucked out of the script.
1: Yeah. And I feel like the way the movie balances all of the characters, you kind of have to either name all of them or name none of them. Right. Like either just cut it off at people in LA struggle to connect to those around them.
0: (laughs) It's really about that neighborhood, right? Because, okay. So my perception of this is that that it's like a little neighborhood. Like the dad talks about we're part of a community now. And the mom that he calls up is like the landlady of the apartment complex in my mind. And she lives like, I think so and she lives right next door to the apartments the i mean she definitely riv-
1: lives right next door i never got the impression that they owned it i don't know that i feel it's like
0: headcanon she... on my part because i'm like how does he know her why does she know his situation and i thought that it was like because he moved there and he's like yeah my kids are going to be there and this is what's going on with me so i don't know that's my headcanon well,
1: A whole month has passed from when they move in to when we really see him interacting with her. Mm -hmm. So I kind of figured that they were just, you know, ended up being outside in the front yard at the same time and ended up chatting and and sort of got to know each other as neighbors that way. Mm -hmm. And so we don't really see that happen. But I think based on on the passage of time, I can sort of buy that it happens off camera.
0: I think your scenario is way more likely and mine's more complicated, which... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> is exactly how my head cannon works. It's always way more complicated. I'm sticking to it, though.
1: Okay. <laughs> so this movie has, like, way more main characters than most movies, and they don't have, you know, really strong motivating goals, I think. And so I think in some way that's connected a little bit to how the narrative functions really different here than it does in most movies. So normally when you watch a movie, all of the small moments are in service of the larger story and kind of like build towards something. Mm -hmm. And here I think the larger story is actually in service of the smaller moments. Like So many of the scenes I think can really hold their own in isolation. In some ways it feels like a series of short films rather than a feature length movie.
0: Definitely. Like you can remember from scene to scene how desperately Miranda July's character like wants to have a connection with with anybody like through her art or, you know, through the people that she drives or a romantic connection. But each of those scenes works just fine on its own for whatever that connection is that she's seeking in the scene. So you were talking about the way that Lonnie's P-gag, you know, approach, which is the protagonist goal versus the antagonist goal. Like you could kind of look at the love story in that way, like in a really large sense. But I think lately she's been teaching in How Story Works about vulnerability and the primary vulnerabilities of fear, identity, love, and shame hook up pretty nicely to each of the main character stories. Like you can really understand... That these characters are fully fleshed out in a way that an ensemble story needs to be as opposed to kind of like an a story where the characters are highly developed and then a b story their story is more reflective or services in a comedic way the the main story it's not like that here everybody's vulnerabilities are fully fleshed out their strengths their weaknesses Like you said, that serves the smaller moments more than the larger story, because when you try to summarize it, it really doesn't work because these stories are so complicated and the characters are so well drawn that they don't summarize nicely. So the dad, Richard, for example... Um, His vulnerability is identity, where he's trying to figure out how he fits into the world now that he's not married. His identity is a father. And then he has like his hand that he burns at the beginning of the movie is kind of symbolic of this vulnerability of love, relationship kind of love, where he's not ready to get into a relationship with anybody. But then by the time the bandage comes off at the end, he's ready. He calls up Christine.
1: He's feeling too old to drive.
0: Right, right yeah. <laughs> I love that line. That's so sweet. So like Andrew, the creepy guy in the neighborhood who's putting all the notes on his window, he's like scared to actually make a connection with these girls because when they knock on his door, he hides from them.
1: But also he should be scared to make a connection with them. Oh, because totally. Because they are not of age. That's like a totally appropriate fear.
0: Yeah. And I think on a certain level, also, he doesn't mean what he says because he includes the line about sleeping like babies. I think that's what he really wants in a connection with somebody else when uh, Richard tells him about how him and his wife, when they first got together, he's like, oh, yeah, it was a real fuckathon, thon right? And he's like, no, I mean, we had sex, but the best part of it was that we would sleep all day like babies. And he's like, oh, yeah, I want that. And then he includes it in his list of fantasies to hook up with the girls. And so, like, I think that's his real vulnerability. Like, he, all the other stuff is kind of posturing.
1: Yeah, focusing on the vulnerability rather than the the goals and motivation. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really smart way to look at this movie, and I think it kind of explains the way it works, even though it's so non-traditional and story-perverse. Yeah, I think you're right. Each of the characters does have a lot of vulnerability, and like that's what this movie is, right? It's like... Yeah. Introducing you to characters, identifying their vulnerabilities, and then like sticking your finger right in that wound and just like (laughs) twisting it a little bit. And if you just do that straight for 90 minutes, it's going to be interesting, even if there's not like a clearly defined goal that someone is like making progress towards.
0: But it's all really funny and not dark. It could be it could be so dark with some of the things that are going on, but it's not dark at all. It's very fun. And it's uh, always funny. Like every scene is funny.
1: I wonder how much of that though is like the music and the editing. Like I wonder if you could recut this movie with like a different score.
0: Oh, that's interesting. And turn
1: it into like, uh, put throw in some uh, like different filters, and just uh-huh. like turn it into a horror movie or something.
0: <laughs> like she's stalking him, and yeah. <laughs> I mean, it would be easy to do with the with the um, underage stuff. Yeah for sure. But yeah, Yeah. that's funny. Yeah, I don't sense any darkness in this movie. Like, the first time I watched it, some of the scenes like had me on edge like, oh, where is this going? This could get creepy. But it's, it's a lot of fun.
1: Maybe that's one of the points of the movie is that like, we do have these impulses in us that, that can lead to dark places, but they don't have to, right? Like, we're all a little bit perverse on some level, Mm -hmm. but, If we make good choices and respect everyone's humanity, then, like, that perversity doesn't have to be darkness.
0: Yeah, and not all art has to be, like, you know, this heavy, dark experience for it to be meaningful. I feel like so many first-time filmmakers, you watch their film student stuff, and it will be, like, the darkest thing. It will be, like, somebody committing suicide. Like, they go on a murder spree, and then they commit suicide. <clears throat> and they like look into a cup of dark coffee, and you're like, what does that mean? And they're like, that's art. That's real life, man. This is not heavy at all. This is very light, but it's also feels very true like this is what it feels like to long for somebody and like when she's sitting there with the phone and she's like i'm waiting to spend the rest of my life with you but you need to fucking call me first yeah (laughs) and and that's like a real feeling but it's so absurd and like well observed that i don't know it's it's delightful you don't feel bad for her you don't you're just like yep i know what that's like
1: so we talked a little bit about human connection and how that's like the main theme of the movie. But I feel like a secondary theme that's also really important is digital culture and then how those two things intersect. It's interesting to think about, this movie came out in 2005, which means mm-hmm. that it was really being made in like 2003, 2004. So like this is kind of very early internet age. It's interesting how... A lot of what it has to say, I think, is still relevant, even though, like, the specific technology has changed so much. Though, I feel like the things that it has to say about how we interact with digital culture, like, still feel really authentic and true.
0: I had not thought about the digital culture thing. But you're totally right, because we've got chat rooms, which was like an early thing. And I feel like the grownups don't get it. Like the kids, especially the two boys, are more on chat rooms and see this as kind of like a recreational activity, like a fun, funny thing to like make fun of people and pretend to be somebody else in a way that the adults don't really understand.
1: But also, I feel like even the interaction between Andrew and Heather and Rebecca is like, a chat room manifested. Totally. Physically in reality, and like a really interesting way where it's like, huh, like I didn't. You know, what would like the fundamental nature of a chat room manifested in the real world be like? It would be like him putting up those signs in his windows and it's like kind of weird and yeah. I think in a way sort of is an argument for the need of these digital spaces, right? Because there's something that is that feels a little bit creepy and dangerous about the interaction between him and Heather and Rebecca. And, like, in the movie, mm-hmm. it ends up being okay because he knows that and he's aware of it and he's, like, clearly not actually going to do anything real with them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mm-hmm.
1: It shows the utility of having these, like, digital spaces where young teens can sort of grapple with their sexuality in a relatively safe space without real-world consequences. I know that sometimes there are real predators that pick up people online but i think in general like there's probably way more people who are like exploring their sexuality online in a safer way than they would be able to do in real life
0: it's funny that his like messages are also kind of in a public forum it would be like if somebody was doing like dirty talk on facebook in like not private messages or something it's really weird (laughs) that whole thing is so weird
1: yeah and I think it's it you kind of have to interpret it as a metaphor on some level, yeah, no, that guy at the bus stop could totally read what yeah. was being said. like he would absolutely have the cops called on him if that was really <laughs> happening in real life.
0: I love that he's right outside a bus stop. That's so yeah.
1: weird. It's kind of like um the ending to to Thelma and Louise that that. Ali and Mandy talked about recently on Pop Culturally Deprived. Like, Uh It just works a lot better if you think of it as a metaphor.
0: Yeah. I I think of all that stuff as art. That's kind of like his art. He's kind of like putting up a collage of fantasies and messages to these girls that is kind of like on public display, you know, which kind of like mirrors that there's like the really pretentious artist who has like garbage balled up on the floor and stuff in the in the art display and they're like, Oh, this looks so real. Like you made it out of paper mache. He's like, no, that's, that's a real sandwich wrapper. I just mix real stuff in. (laughs) And like his, these are like real messages and fantasies, but he has like buried in it. He has the things that he really fantasizes about, like just sleeping in a bed with somebody that he feels safe with, but then surrounded by it are like these exciting fantasies that he thinks they want to hear. And that they really are like after a sexual experience, but not like a connection with anybody that is authentic. They see it as like practice or like you said, like exploring their sexuality as teenagers.
1: It's interesting. You know, Miranda July does a lot of performance art and like very modern art mm-hmm. that I think a lot of mainstream audiences would sort of struggle to connect to or like see the purpose of Mm -hmm. and one of the things that i think is so interesting about this movie is the way that it both includes a lot of art that's in that style but also is critical of it at the same time Mm -hmm. what is the difference between authentic art and bullshit art (laughs) you know (laughs) i don't know if it really like answers that question but i think it raises some interesting questions that's like The line that always makes me just bust out laughing when Nancy confronts him and she's like, that's my mug. You took that from the staff kitchen. (laughs) No, I made that.
0: (laughs) And she just looks back and forth between them like, is all of this bullshit?
1: Yeah, like, what what am I even doing with my life? (laughs) Another one of my favorite lines from that scene is when Nancy says that email wouldn't even exist if it weren't for AIDS. (laughs) <laughs> and like that that's one of those lines that i feel like the first few times i watched the movie i just thought it was absurdity and kind of appreciated it on that level uh-huh. and then like the more times i watched it the more i was like wait is there actually something there there like like i don't know if you can draw a direct causal link from HIV AIDS to email but there definitely is something about like having so much of our lives online now and like the era of anthrax and and infectious diseases and and like we're scared to really touch each other Mm -hmm. now even if it's not a causal link there is some sort of, like, correlation between the two that is, like, real on some level.
0: I feel like that's this whole movie in a nutshell. Oh, this is harmlessly absurd. And then, like, the longer you sit with it, you're like, but wait, is is all of this on purpose? Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love all that stuff. How honest it is about art and about the way it's curated. You get that behind the scenes thing of when they're looking through... The different pitches and the assistant girl says to Nancy, like, well, is she of color? And she says, no, but she's a woman. So there's that. And so they're like, not even like looking at the art. They're thinking like, it's all a pretense for like, how do we look as the people who are presenting the artists? And then the assumptions of the artists, like when Christine is saying through the VHS tape, like you're probably watching this at home with your dog and you're fire and you're singing carols. I don't know why you're singing carols. Like she's making all these assumptions about how perfect everybody else's life is and how desperate she is to be validated as an artist And how it doesn't even matter to the curator to give validation or anything like that.
1: I think that's one of the big themes of the movie, too, is just like how wrong we are about each other. Like, that is Mm -hmm. a perfect example, but it happens a couple times where someone makes an assumption about someone else and is just so totally wrong. Yep. The other really great example of that is when the dad and Robbie are having the conversation about that sound. And oh, the, dad, yeah. the dad says to Robbie like oh you're just never up this early and it's like repeatedly throughout the movie Robbie is mm. always the only person in the house that's awake of that time that's like you don't even know your own children right <laughs> yeah and to a, to a certain extent like you can never really know another person as like much as you want to.
0: Well, or you're not inclined to because you're like so caught up in your own situation that you're not actually paying attention to what's going on with other people. Because everybody in this movie is really like caught up in what they want and in their personal loneliness and the need to like have a connection with somebody else that they're not even paying attention to what other people want. There's, a, there's that really good scene Uh, That the quote came from at the beginning where they're walking down the street and they're talking about like, oh, this is like our life as a metaphor. And we're halfway there. And down at the end, that's where we die together. And then she in a little bit after that, she jumps in the car with him and she says, this is like the afterlife. And he's like, hey, get out of my car. This is not okay." Like, you can't just assume that we're together. Like, she's still pretending and she wants that connection so badly, and he's not ready for it, and he's still hurting from the divorce and the separation. They're not connecting with the actual experience of each other. They're just concerned with kind of like their own personal loneliness. All of these characters have this fantasy life that they are wrestling with. It's kind of like you said, where they're not seeing each other exactly correctly because they're caught up in this fantasy that helps to protect them from their vulnerability, but also helps them to reach out to other people. And then there's always like this inevitable kind of discontinuity between what's really happening to the characters and what they're fantasizing about. The clearest example of that is the chat room that the boys are in. The older brother is saying, like, oh, yeah, this is definitely a dude. But the younger brother is, like, (laughs) interested in, like, saying these weird things that he seems very sincere about. I I don't know how to read that kid. He's so cute. And then, like, when the fantasy of that becomes a reality on that park bench, like, it's just too weird to survive. (laughs) (laughs) But... It happens with all of the characters. They have like these weird fantasy spaces where the girls want to have this sexual experience. And then when they try out a sexual experience, it a very uncomfortable and awkward experience or the hope chest is like a very calculated fantasy. But then when you compare it, like with the actual reality of having a family, like all of that is very messy. Like with, the divorce that the dad is going through and trying to raise these boys. Should he raise the boys in this very romantic way where he wants them to like have unkept beds and have breakfast for dinner and like where they're wild and free range kids or like, do they need the order of the chore wheel that they get in their mom's (laughs) house? Like it's all just, it's all very connected and weird. And I love the role of fantasy in all these characters lives
1: sorry i'm just giggling about the chore wheel like (laughs) anything that robbie does is just so amazing that's the the classic advice is like never do anything with animals or children right because his performance is like so key i think to it working and like how can you bank on finding a six-year-old like that
0: yeah, even the last scene where like where he's making the noise that he's heard for the whole movie and he's so intense oh, yeah. and you feel like he's actually making the sunrise on some level. Like that seems to be his fantasy yeah. in that moment.
1: So while we're talking about the end of the movie, does the ending with the coin work for you? And then I also wanted to ask, there's kind of a framing device, right? Because it starts off with Richard in the house, looking at the bird painting and looking at the bird outside and sort of like art and facsimile representations of real life and symbolism. And then it ends with him actually like trying to put the painting in a bush and then (laughs) finally just like leaving it in the tree. And it's like, oh, the bird finally found its home. It looks out of place and it and it looks like it shouldn't belong there. It seems absurd. But like in actuality, that is like exactly where it needs to be. And the mm-hmm. sort of like blending of the fantasy and the reality.
0: It makes me think of that famous Oscar Wilde quote, life imitates art far more than art imitates life. <laughs> We want our lives to be kind of neat and clean in the way that stories are where you meet somebody, you're interested in each other, you fall in love, and then it's happily ever after. And you don't have to deal with the details. Richard says that I want to be swept off my feet and I want my kids to have magical powers. I'm ready for adventure. But like, he's not any of those things. He's not (laughs) like he can't handle it when his kid gets sick. And the other kid has to like walk home from school like he's not capable at all like he's going through very normal problems and he's not able to deal with them very well.
1: I'm curious how you feel about the way that parenting is represented in this movie because as (laughs) not a parent, it strikes me as like really capturing a lot of the like chaos and the sort of complexity of that relationship. I love the way that when Robbie ends up walking home by himself and he's like panicked about finding out where he is, he like he yells at them and kind of like scares them and pisses them off. But it's like really out of fear. You totally understand in that moment, like why he reacted the way he did and you sympathize with him. But you also understand then why the kids are so pissed off at him. They're like, you fucked up and you're blaming us for your own fuck up. And then he has to spend like the end of the movie, basically like trying to get them back on his side.
0: Yeah, I feel like that's all of parenting right there. (laughs)
1: It's like
0: you make a mistake and then the children pay for it. You feel guilty. Yeah, and they resent you. You resent yourself and then you take it out on each other. And that's pretty much like what all of parenting actually is. As opposed to that kind of fantasy that you have of like, I'm gonna correct all the mistakes that were done to me, I'm going to be kind, I'm going to like my children will never eat anything but like the best organic food and like yeah, and then none of that happens. Like it's all very messy and complicated.
1: But like, the you are a precious treasure version of parenting. Yeah. That that you have when you're ten or whatever.
0: I do feel like Sylvie is definitely speaking to that idealized version of parenting. She has, like, this very orderly notion of what everything will be like, and it's not that way at all.
1: Sylvie, I feel like, is a really good example of, like, another one of the kind of perverse things that this movie does, which is, like, (laughs) it fucks with your expectations of age and, like, what age is supposed to mean. Mm -hmm. This is a really interesting movie... In that it shows people from the age of, like, 6 to 96 exhibiting characteristics that, like, you wouldn't necessarily expect for someone of that age. Because, like, Sylvie, she's, like, 11 or 12 or something, but she's also kind of 45.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Totally.
1: You know, Robbie ends up going on a date with, like, a, (laughs) you know, a woman probably in her, like, 40s. Um, Yeah. You have... Hector and Ellen, who are basically, like, living this, like, young, youthful romance, even though they look like octogenarians.
0: I love the way that he describes it, where he says, like, maybe I had to live 70 years to be ready for a woman like this. Like, he's very romantic about it and sweet.
1: Yeah, he's, like, way more romantic and sort of idealistic about the idea of romance than any of the young people are, right? Because the Mm. teens are all kind of just like more exploring, I think, sex than romance. The middle-aged people are like much more jaded. It's like you kind of have to be 80 to like (laughs) really just give up on all of the other stuff and, and like buy into like the pure romance.
0: Yeah, like his identity is not as tied up into it as Richard and Christine's, like where they need to be with somebody to be like a functioning adult. Mm-hmm. That's how it feels to me. They're, they're romance. They're seeking somebody to like, like Richard says in the beginning, like, do I seem like a normal guy to you people? Like to to you boys, do I seem like a normal person? Like you look at me and say like, yeah, that guy has his stuff together. Like he's yeah. very worried about that. <laughs>
1: I love too the the two kids' uh different reactions to that. Peter yeah, totally yeah. understands what his dad is asking for and without even thinking about it is just like, uh-huh, yeah, you're great. You're like you're perfect, you're totally normal. And Robbie is just like, What? <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. He's just like, Are you mad at us?
0: He's yeah. Like,
1: he like understands that there's some like pain and trauma underlying it and is like but like doesn't understand what the source of that pain actually is.
0: <laughs> and it's actually like what you're saying, like he he's so young, he doesn't have any pretenses about like the need to look like you have your shit together. And the older man just doesn't. He's like, yeah, I needed to live this long to understand how to fall in love with somebody properly. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: yeah. He just doesn't care. He's like, whatever. You're my dad. Like you're my dad. It doesn't matter if you have your shit together or not. That's just who you are. <laughs> I love Sylvie's whole thing with the hope chest. Did you have a hope chest when you were little?
1: Uh, absolutely not.
0: <laughs> no, it, I didn't think so. The way that you talked about your parents got you a lock for your room when you were 16.
1: <laughs> no, I had actually never even heard of a hope chest before I oh, saw really? this movie. My- Is that like a thing that, pe- that actually exists?
0: Oh yeah, definitely. It It made me think of, so the scene where she's laying on the floor talking with the older brother about her hope chest and her future. Like she's doing interior decoration on the ceiling and stuff really made me think of my first girlfriend who had a hope chest. And that was the first time that I had ever heard of that. She was this uh, sweet Mormon girl and like that religion, You know, like, I don't want to offend anybody who's Mormon because I'm actually fascinated by it, but it's very patriarchal. The Hope Chest is almost like a dowry, basically. It, like, you get the girl and all the stuff, you know?
1: That's definitely the way I interpreted it. The Hope Chest part has always made me a little bit uncomfortable. Like, I guess it's okay because she's choosing it, but it Mm -hmm. does feel, yeah, a lot like a dowry. It, like, kind of makes me wonder like why she's choosing that.
0: I definitely have lived that scene where they're laying on the floor and she is like including him in this very meticulous fantasy about the future. Yeah, my husband will do this and my children will do this. And you can tell that like she's thinking of him in the husband role. (laughs) I don't know. He's trying to participate in the fantasy, but then she's talking about how all of that stuff would fall down and crush you like, there's a lot of pressure in that fantasy, it feels yeah.
1: like. My favorite part of the Hope Trust storyline is when she goes to the department store to buy <laughs> the the immersion blender. It's just, like, some little subtle things that let you know that this is, like, you know, the regular occurrence. Her mom's like, you only have 20 minutes. And then I get the feeling that the sales lady has, like, Like they have a pre-existing relationship. She's like, oh God, not this girl again. Right.
0: (laughs) This creepy kid who's super
1: serious. Yeah, the soup won't be digital. Why not? It's a liquid. (laughs) (laughs) There is some things that cannot be transitioned to a digital world. Like some things are constrained. Liquids are one of them because water and technology do not mix well.
0: (laughs) It's just so good that the utter sincerity that she has. You could tell, like,
1: I mean, that is a
0: way to, like, reveal her vulnerability. The sales girl is just trying to be friendly and be like, oh, technology, right? And she's like, no, this is serious. What are you talking about? Like, this is all real. (laughs) The hope chest and the parenting stuff was, like, the stuff that, from my real life, where I'm like, oh, yeah, I get, this is totally true. This is all real.
1: That's so funny. I... Yeah, i literally never heard of a Hope chest, so that is, it's, like, kind of my, I, like, didn't realize that was a thing that happened. I'm curious how much of a male gaze you felt on the storyline with Heather and Rebecca and Andrew. Mm -hmm. She flashes her underwear, and they, like, make out in a very performative way. I don't know, I'm trying to figure out why... It didn't feel exploitative to me, I guess, because to a large extent, they are in control of the situation and you can really understand their motivations and like their desire to be desired and have this sexual experience. I don't know.
0: That's exactly how I felt. Yeah. Yeah that they're kind of leveraging the male gaze to get what they want. They're like, oh, this turns on guys, right? Like when we make out with each other or I'm gonna, yeah, flash my panties at him. That's that's a thing, right? You, you feel like Andrew is in control of nothing at any yeah. point in this story. <laughs> like he's putting up these messages, but I feel like he doesn't even mean them. He thinks that their fantasy is funny. Like he's not buying that they're 18. He's like, oh, wouldn't that be funny to meet two girls who are sisters and girlfriends and 18 and very nice people. You're very nice people. Right.
1: Yeah. And I think that line is super key where it's like, it Mm -hmm. breaks the fantasy, right? He's like, Oh yeah. And you guys are also humans too. And like primarily that's what you are
0: you see the mean side of them in the way that they treat the brothers. They bully them. So you get like a three dimensional picture of those girls in a way that I think is pretty important. And they're always in control of every situation. And they're always looking in on other people too. Like it's something I noticed the last time that I watched it where they, there's one point where they're outside and they're looking in the taller girl's house and Mm -hmm. And she says, like, don't look at my dad. We're not going to involve him in these kind of situations that we keep getting into. And it's kind of that space that they're in in their life where they're, you know, between childhood and adulthood. And they're looking in on trying to figure out who they're going to be, what what all of this means.
1: They're, like, really trying to take control and, like, construct Mm -hmm. their, like, selves and their reality in an interesting way. The, like, list of demands for the... (laughs) blow job contest. Right. (laughs) And they're just like they're like everything has to be perfect and like, oh look, I've been carry I carry around the CD like all day, every day, just in case I need it in this moment.
0: That was a good way for them to exert control too, where she's like, well, this isn't going to happen if you don't have the music. Oh, look, I have the music. It's not like he performed a magical spell and had all the right ingredients. It was like, we have the key ingredients and we're letting this happen to you.
1: Yeah, and too, that I think is a great example of how this both speaks very specifically to 2005, but also like more generally to digital culture that like in 2005, she pulled out the cd but mm-hmm. in 2017 she would have like pulled up pandora on her phone or something mm-hmm. and it would have had a very similar effect
0: yeah it's all weirdly like like they talk about having to have the phone line open to use the internet oh
1: yeah yeah <laughs> that was so great <laughs> Oh, I I remember that. I remember when uh, my family got two landlines, so we could be on the internet and still take phone calls.
0: Oh, it was definitely like a problem in the early two thousands. Yeah, phone bills and yeah, yeah. Even the art the boys are doing is like so early two thousands. The I I always say ASCII art, but it's the A-S-C-I.
1: Yeah, I think it's ASCII. Art. That's what I say. Yeah.
0: That stuff is early two thousands too, where they're not using like a graphics program or something.
1: But also, it's, like, a book of ASCII art, which mm-hmm. is hilarious on some level. <laughs> and it's, like, a very, very s- specific point of in time where, like, that could have happened.
0: Right. I love how awkward that sexual experience for everybody is. How real all of that seems. And, like, Sylvie being outside the window and, like, how heartbroken she is. and. Mm-hmm. How weird it is for him and how weird it like it's not even about him for them. It's just about this weird competition that they're having in their friendship and how relieved they are that he doesn't pick one of them. That whole thing seems very authentic to me.
1: Yeah, no, I totally agree. Like so many times, I think your first sexual experiences are very fraught and filled with like feelings of inadequacy and like, am I good enough? And this captured it very well.
0: And not in a way that was like dark or sad. It's like all absurd and real and funny. Mm -hmm. Like the movie, like the tone of the movie. I don't know how she did it. Like she balances the tone so beautifully through the whole thing. It's so impressive.
1: There's that moment when Christine first is at the shoe store and he says something like you think that foot pain is a fact of life, but like it doesn't have to be. And he says it in just like such a sincere, genuine way where it's like this uncanny valley between like being a like profound general statement about life and being Mm -hmm. a sales tactic. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That, like, made me so uncomfortable, but in a really interesting way.
0: Yeah, he says, you think you deserve that pain, but you don't.
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It just, like, it's, I don't have anything particularly brilliant to say, but it just, like, it stuck out to me as sort of, like, evocative of sort of, like, that thin line that the movie is walking on so many levels in every scene.
0: It's Yeah, it's so hard to read that scene because why is he saying that? It's exactly what you said because I think for her, that's the moment where she notices him. Like the expression on her face changes and she's like very surprised in a kind of romantic way uh, to notice him suddenly. Um, I don't think that she's very attracted to him at first, but then when he says that and he's so kind to her and she's like, what do you mean I don't deserve to be in pain later he's walking through the shoe store I think it's the next day when it's set and he sees those shoes that he sold to her Mm -hmm. and and he kind of looks at them in a longing way like he's remembering her so maybe it was about her I don't know because we do see him with the sales pitch to Sylvie's mom and he's not like that at all he's not he's not being profound or anything it's really well written and, and well performed by both of them.:
1: I really love what she does with the shoes, like of all of the art pieces that she does that we actually get to see,
0: like uh, yeah. writing
1: the yeah. the the words on the shoes and then sort of like having her feet chasing. such. So like I don't know how she manages to capture such raw emotion just through like the motion of her feet. and like the symbolism <laughs> is so over the top and like silly, but like, I don't know. I love it anyway.
0: It's really good. I, and I love that the, the labels, so she writes me on one and you on the other. But then when she films it, it's upside down because she's like looking down at her own feet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that.
1: <laughs>
0: it's like perfectly awkward. Yeah. And then
1: that kind of speaks to like the backward text in the, in the mirror of, uh, yes. of Richard's ex wife. Exactly. Yeah, all
0: this stuff is so connected. Like it and it all feels like on purpose. Like it's all so skillfully done. You don't know what's like a real connection and what is just like a coincidence or absurd bullshit. But like that's like real life, right? On a on a certain level, like something happens to you and you're like, what does that mean? And like it probably doesn't mean anything. Like it's just a coincidence. (laughs) But maybe it does mean something, or or it can mean something if you tell yourself the right story. And like, how healthy is that? And like, ugh. like this whole movie is kind of like life in a way.
1: That, yeah, I don't know. Like,
0: I'm so glad that um you had me watch this movie because it is great. But like, it is confounding in a way where it, it it will catch you in its connections.
1: How heteronormative does this movie feel to you?
0: I'd say pretty heteronormative. I can't think of any. Well, there's the making out scene, but that is like intentionally manipulative. It's not, yeah, yeah, you
1: know, yeah. I don't think that counts at all,
0: no. <laughs> it might count against it, actually,
1: yeah, I like the the portrayal of a biracial family mm-hmm. that's some really interesting and important representation, and also how that's like not really the focus of the story. When you podcast about these movies and you ask yourself the questions that you might not ask otherwise, I was just sort of thinking like, yeah, there's like a lot of heterosexuality here.
0: Yeah, for Los Angeles, too. In like 2005, you would think somebody in the script would be gay, but I don't feel like it erases anything. It doesn't it doesn't seem like malicious or unconscious. It's just not there.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I guess the relationships that we do see are so queer in the broadest sense of that word. Oh, yeah. Like like they're all heterosexual, but they're not heteronormative in the way that we think of like a very narrow prescribed way to be in a relationship.
0: And the hope chest is like the most patriarchal thing. And it is the weirdest thing in the whole movie. Like it does not feel healthy in the movie, like compared with everything else. That's kind of fun. Like that one feels the most weighty and strange.
1: Yeah. And actually, I guess now that I think about it, it is kind of like Sylvie seems like she has problems connecting to her peers. Mm
0: -hmm. Like she's
1: very skilled at interacting with the adult saleswoman and she has the younger children who she kind of hangs out with at recess But we never see her interacting with anyone her own age, really, except for Peter, um, who may even be a little bit older. She doesn't know how to interact with her peers, so she's living out this fantasy life instead to sort of fill that void and then, you know what fantasy is the easiest and most obvious to hold on to while it's like the patriarchy.
0: Like you talk about the influence of digital culture and her story feels like the most aggressively opposed to that where, you know, we make the joke about things being digital in the future and soup, you know, won't be digital. But she's like, she's very against that. She wants nothing to change. And she wants like everything to be very predictable for her.
1: Yeah, (laughs) She wants to buy a bunch of appliances as like a 10 year olds, and then have them like still be relevant and state of the art 15 when she's years 30. later. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Her fantasy is like the most opposed to digital modern culture and its influence, and really is like steeped in that patriarchy. And she feels like the weirdest character out of everybody, and like the loneliest and saddest character, too. Like, you kind of worry about Sylvie on a yeah. certain level.
1: Oh, I mean, but I feel like she and Peter made a connection, like, maybe there's, mm-hmm. uh, that can be a positive thing for her. This is just, like, another t- totally typical interaction between, like, a young kid and an adult when she's, she's standing on the chair to, like, open the door, and she's like, hello, and he's like, where's Robbie, and she's like, would you think that I was really this tall if you didn't know me, and he's yeah. like, where's <laughs> Robbie, and runs away. <laughs> it's, like, so good. <laughs>
0: I don't have time for your weird kid bullshit. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but you but you totally understand, like, where she's coming from at the same time that you understand that, like, he does not give a fuck.
0: Yeah, because she's still, I think she's still back with, because that's the day that she spent with Peter, and she's thinking about, like, how much taller Peter is than her, and she's, like, imagining herself all grown up, like mm-hmm. she's been doing all day. I love that moment where he's sleeping on her couch, too, and she kind of, like... Oh, yeah. Gingerly approaches him, almost like a fairy tale, inverted. But she doesn't do anything. She just stands there staring at him. Yeah, she's so odd.
1: Yeah, good thing, because if she kissed him, she'd get the stomach flu. Right.
0: (laughs) Whatever. So, like, overall, what does me and you and everyone we know mean to you, like, in your life?
1: I think it definitely has changed the way that I think about narrative and art and there's so many quotes in this movie that just like come to mind unbidden throughout (laughs) my daily life
0: I'm always thinking about religion and stuff and now every time that I think of karma I think about his terrible description of karma
1: it means she (laughs) owes me one yeah
0: (laughs) don't you know what karma is it means she owes me one (laughs) that's not karma Do you recommend this to other people on, like, a regular basis? Like, how does that go when you tell somebody to watch this?
1: So I've watched this movie with a lot of my friends. Mm -hmm. I don't really trust people to watch it without me because I feel like it's kind of such a (laughs) what-the-fuck experience. Like, I want to be there with them Uh, (laughs) to see their reaction and to, like... Make sure they actually finish it. Nobody loves this movie as much as I do, but they don't seem to hate it. They seem to think it's interesting. One of the the main ways that I've gotten people to watch it recently is just by asking them if they've ever played Cards Against Humanity. And then if they Mm -hmm. say yes, I'll say like, well, this is the movie that invented the phrase pooping back and forth. So if you want to know what that actually means and where it comes (laughs) from, you should watch this movie. And it does work for like a certain type of person. I've Um,
0: heard of Cards Against Humanity, but I've never played it. So that's one of the cards?
1: Yeah, one of the cards is just pooping back and forth, the phrase. (laughs) And then I I think it also has the emoji at the bottom, too. I love that. You know, I didn't love this movie until I'd seen it three or four times. So I feel like I can't blame other people for not loving it as much as I do. Uh, what What did you think?
0: You say that you watch, you want to watch this movie when you recommend it with other people. So when I watched it, I was texting you over and over, like through the whole thing. Yeah, and I loved it like immediately because this is like. My whole thing of like story perversity, I was like, oh, this movie is like aggressively weird, but it's doing it in a thoughtful way. That's not just like, oh, we're going to do the opposite of what we're supposed to do for the hell of it. Like she's doing really interesting things.
1: Yeah, it doesn't fall into the sort of manic pixie dream girl, like quirky, but in a super empty way.
0: Yeah, so that first time that I watched it, I just kept sending you messages like, oh, I'm at this point, and this is hilarious.
1: Yeah, like, on some level, I feel like this movie kind of redeemed the word quirky for me, because (laughs) I think, like, quirky started out as a good word, and then quirk got overplayed, and it became kind of, like, a pejorative, trying too hard kind of thing. But it's, like, one of the few words that really fits to describe the movie, and It's Quirk Redemption.
0: I did watch this with my wife one time, and uh, she did not like it at all. (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. Because I think because it's so aggressively weird, and it didn't have that macro story. So she was like trying to follow the thread. And eventually she just gave up. I think you have to see it more than once to start to unravel like what she's doing with all the connections between the different characters and stuff.
1: Definitely agree with that.
0: I think for some people who are more concerned with plot, it would be an aggravating experience the first time you watch it, but it's very character-driven, so it depends on what your tastes are. It was right up my alley, because I was, <laughs> this is weird, and the characters are great, and I think the writing's really good.
1: Well, that bodes well for the rest of this podcast, so. <laughs> I guess we're done for this week, or month, yeah, this is a monthly is podcast. Month. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L.
0: I'm Alan, and you can follow me on Twitter at ChipperAllen. You can follow the show on Twitter at HGStoryCast, and visit our website at HGStoryCast.com.
1: If you'd like to contact us or leave us feedback, you can visit HGStoryCast.com slash contact or send an email to contact at hallowedgroundmedia.com. If you like what we do, if you appreciate this podcast, we would love it if you could leave us a rating or a review for the show on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. And don't forget to join us next month for our episode on Kingdom of Heaven, The Director's Cut.
0: So each month we're taking turns picking a show, movie, or book. And so this was your pick and next month is mine. It's one of my favorite movies. And it's also the very first thing that I ever podcasted about, and I'm going to be telling some stories about that and kind of reclaiming that experience for myself. And so that's why I picked that for my first thing. Uh, But Kingdom of Heaven has Orlando Bloom. So if you've ever watched like the Pirates of the Caribbean or the Lord of the Rings movie, He's the main character in that. And then you got Ridley Scott, who's done all kinds of blockbuster movies. And you'd be like, why haven't I heard of this movie? Because it's one of the biggest commercial flops of all time. But the director's cut fixes a lot of those problems. And I think it's really interesting. I really love that movie. I love that cut of that movie. And it's had interesting, weird effects on me throughout my life. So I'm going to be talking about those stories. Even if you don't watch the movie, uh, I would say listen anyway, because I'm going to have a bunch of stories about myself, I guess, unless you don't like me, and then skip that <laughs> one.
1: Well, why I was are you listening say, to this
0: podcast?
1: <laughs> uh, I'm really excited to talk about leprosy, which plays uh, an important role yeah. in the movie, so, so stick I, around if you like leprosy.
0: Yeah, I love leprosy. That's my favorite. <laughs> uh,
1: I think it'll be a good conversation, even if you don't want to spend uh, three hours watching a... What is essentially I guess like a religious war epic yeah that's a sub genre.
0: that'll be our November movie so if you have uh any experiences with that movie go ahead and get in touch with us and let us know and we will feature your story in that episode or if you have any feedback about this one let us know
1: if you loved me and you and everyone we know if it infuriated the fuck out of you let <laughs> us know Hallowed Ground Storycast is a Hallowed Ground media production and is produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial share alike license.